Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 15, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Last week, uh, we saw how the decision was arrived at for Shaul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, to become what is usually called the first king of Israel. However, in the Lord's eyes, Saul wasn't Israel's first king. Rather, Saul was just going to be Israel's first human king. Yehovah was, was Israel's king from the moment he redeemed them from Egypt. And you know, not in a merely ethereal or some kind of idealized sense, but in a fully legal sense. Thus in chapter 9, the Lord, through Samuel, told the leaders of Israel who were demanding a governmental change from a system of judges to a monarchy modeled after their Gentile neighbors, that they were essentially establishing a whole new legal arrangement and that this legal arrangement would be between Israel and the human king that they were demanding. Now, this matter of divine legality is a, it's a very core issue in the Bible, Old Testament and New, and one that few Christians are particularly familiar or comfortable with. Now, 1 Samuel 10 drags us, somewhat unexpectedly, into several deep spiritual issues, some of which may sound, on the surface at least, like a review. However, it's going to be more of an expansion, or perhaps even an, an unveiling of sorts. So try to stay tuned in and focused, please. Because Christians tend to tune out and have a knee-jerk, ho-hum attitude towards the biblical legal codes. You know, it's the modern-day believer's mantra that we avoid the dreaded legalism that is perhaps the church's chief historical boogeyman. And at the same time, what the church doesn't typically realize is that our own salvation is totally dependent upon the biblical legal code because it's it is the fulfillment of these legalities by Yeshua that qualified him to be our Messiah and Redeemer. Let's begin by addressing this broad issue of law and the biblical legal code by recalling something that Jesus said. Matthew 5.17 Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Our Savior says two critical things in this verse that are central to our study today and also especially to New Testament study. First of all, he says he didn't come to abolish the law, meaning that legal section of the Torah, the Jews often call the law of Moses, nor did he come to abolish the prophets, meaning he didn't come to discard or change what Yehovah 
proclaimed would eventually occur regarding Israel's future and mankind's redemptive history. Second, he repeats, for emphasis I guess, that while his purpose and his mission is not to abolish, his purpose is to fulfill the biblical legal code as well as the numerous ancient prophecies of Holy Scripture, particularly as it pertains to him. Now, I've spoken scores of times about this passage and the next three verses that further cement what I'm about to tell you. I've explained to you that the sense of the word in that passage um, that says fulfill is not to end something, it's not to eradicate or stop something, which is the typical and erroneous explanation that frankly most denominations offer. Let me quote for you a secular source. Let me quote for you Webster's New World College Dictionary as to the modern meaning of the word fulfill. One, to carry out something that's been promised. Two, to obey. Three, to fill all the requirements. Four, to satisfy all the conditions. Think about that. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to carry out the thing that had been promised. I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I did come to obey. I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I did come to fill all the requirements. I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to satisfy all the conditions. What does that do for you? Changes things a little bit, doesn't it? All of these four variations of meaning of the meaning of fulfill are generally in line with the Greek word that is being translated. That word is pleiru. That's exactly what it intended to mean. And you can look that up in any good concordance. Now a fifth definition in the Webster's Dictionary is offered and it is to complete or end in the sense of finishing writing a term paper or deciding that your family is large enough now so you'll have no more children. If you complete a a term paper and turn it in, you haven't abolished your term paper or the requirement to have one. The arrival of your last child that you intend on having, thus completing your family, certainly doesn't mean that you've abolished your older children or discarded them in favor of the latest one, does it? Thus, just as he so plainly said, Christ didn't end the biblical legal code. To the contrary, he he obeyed it. Yeshua didn't erase and discard the law of Moses. Rather, he carried those laws out to their ultimate purpose and he accomplished all of their requirements. 
So was Jesus a legalist? Should we accuse Messiah Yeshua and his disciples and Paul the Apostle and all the others of legalism because they continued to obey the law of Moses? Weren't they under grace? Did the grace offered to them collide with their obedience to the law? If one's under grace... Does this of necessity separate a person from any obligation of obedience to God's laws? Let me ask you another question. Are you committing legalism because you obey your community's posted speed limits? Are you committing legalism because you pay your taxes? Are you a slave to the law because you don't murder people or steal from them? Here's the point. The relationship that all disciples of Yeshua have with God is absolutely the result of Yehovah's laws that are written down in His covenants. At Mount Sinai, the God of Israel established the basis of any relationship we might ever hope to have with Him. And it includes laws and a justice system that enforces those laws. God established and maintains a legal relationship with the people He redeems. Israel. And that legal relationship continues with those of us who are spiritually grafted in to Israel, the church. Of course, what entitles us and obligates us to that legal relationship between God and members of His kingdom is our faith and trust in His Son, the Messiah Yeshua. And ironically... The, the, the legal relationship that is formed comes from a mutual love between God and we, His worshipers. I did not say that salvation comes to us by following God's laws. But the legitimacy, hear this, the legitimacy of our Savior, Yeshua, indeed was established by His faithfulness to God's laws and to bringing about all that the prophets foretold. Let me illustrate another aspect of how it is that we as believers have agreed to subject ourselves to a way of righteous living that is defined by and expressed in God's laws and ordinances. As an American citizen living here in Florida, do you have any legal relationship with England? No, you don't. But you know what? If you go there, you'll be subject to at least some of their laws. If you voluntarily become an English citizen, even a dual citizen then you have established a legal relationship with England 
and you are now subject to all of their laws. You will receive all the benefits of that legal system, as well as all the consequences for violating the laws. Yeshua is our Messiah because he met all the biblical legal requirements. That is, he didn't sin. What is sin? The breaking of God's legal code. Does obeying all of our American laws make you or keep you a citizen? No. Neither does obeying all of God's laws make you or keep you a citizen of heaven. But there are varying degrees of consequences when you don't obey God's laws. Generally speaking, God's grace offered through trust in Jesus mitigates those penalties so that we're not eternally destroyed when we sin. Now, from a legal standpoint, God has made it clear that He is King over all those who He has redeemed. In turn, Israel agreed that God was their King. Thus, those who are redeemed by this King are subject to the laws set down by him. But now, Israel wants to change the deal. The Lord has warned Israel that they're going to be subject to the justice that this new human king of Israel administers, and it's going to be different than the justice that the Lord has administered, even though ideally it shouldn't be. And this is because this new king is a flawed and fallen human being. Thus, the issue that underlies everything from this point forward in Holy Scripture is this. Who will be our king? Who will be your king? And what legal system will he administer upon us what will be his characteristics with what God will he affiliate now this is important because man will be ruled by a king and that king will establish and administer some legal code this is because we have been created by Yehovah to desire and need a strong ruler over us. Otherwise, we will go astray from the laws the king has established and it will all be chaos. Now with that as a background, let's read 1 Samuel chapter 10 together. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 10, which is page 313 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. What did I say? Oh, I'm on the wrong chapter. Sorry. Just a couple pages off. Chapter 10, page 307. I stand correct. 
Then Shmuel took a, task, a flask of oil he had prepared and he poured it on Shoal's head. And he kissed him and he said, Adonai has appointed you to be prince over his inheritance. And after you leave me today, you'll find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin and Zelzah. And they will tell you that the donkeys you were searching for have been found. And that your father has stopped thinking about the donkey and he's, and he's anxious over you and he's asking, what am I to do about my son? Go on from there and you will come to the Oak of Tabor. Three men will meet you there on their way up to God at Bethel. And one of them will be carrying three kids, another three loaves of bread, and a third a skin of wine. They will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you are to accept from them. After that, you will come to Giva of God, where the Philistines are garrisoned. And on arrival at the city there, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place, preceded by lutes, tambourines, flutes, and lyres, and they'll be prophesying. And then the spirit of Adonai will fall upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And when these signs come over you, just do whatever you feel like doing because God's with you. Then you, go, you are to go down ahead of me to Gilgal. And there I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and present sacrifices as peace offerings. Wait there for seven days until I come and tell you what to do. Now, as it happened, as soon as he had turned his back to Shmuel, Samuel, God gave him another heart. And as all those signs took place that day, and when they arrived at the hill, and there in front of him was a group of prophets, the spirit of Adonai fell upon him, and he prophesied along with them. When those who knew him from before, saw him there prophesying with the prophets. They asked one another, What's happened to Kisha's son? Is Shaul a prophet too? Someone in the crowd answered, Must prophets' fathers be special? So it became an expression, Is Shaul a prophet too? And when he had finished prophesying, he arrived at the high place. And Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he answered, to look for the donkeys and when we saw that they hadn't been found we went to Samuel oh tell me please said Saul's uncle what did Samuel say to you and Saul answered his uncle well he told us that the donkeys had been found but he said nothing to him about the matter of his being made king now Samuel summoned the people to Adonai at Mitzpah and he said to the people of Israel here is what the Adonai of God uh, what Adonai the God of Israel says I brought Israel up from Egypt I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that have oppressed you but today you have rejected your God who himself saves you from all your disasters and distress you have said to him no put a king over us so now Present yourselves before Adonai by your tribes and your families. So Shmuel had all the tribes come forward and the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And he had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by families. And the family of Matri was chosen and Saul the son of Kish was chosen. But when they looked for him, he couldn't be found. They asked Adonai, has the man come here? And Adonai answered, there he is, hiding in among the equipment. 
And they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was a head and shoulders taller than anyone around. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man that Adonai has chosen? That there is no one like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Long live the king! Shmuel told the people what kind of rulings should be made in the kingdom. He wrote it on a scroll and set it down before Adonai. And after that, he sent all the people away, everyone to his own home. And Saul too went home to Giva, accompanied by warriors whose hearts God had touched. True, there were some scoundrels who said, How can this man save us? They showed him no respect. They brought him no gift. But he held his peace. In the first verse, we see Samuel anointing Saul's head with oil as indicative of his being chosen king. Now, please notice, first of all, that there really ought to be no chapter break between the last verse of chapter 9 and the first verse of 10. The action is just continuing. Saul's young servant has been dismissed and told to go on ahead. Samuel is walking and talking with Saul and suddenly out comes a flask of oil and the surprised Saul is solemnly doused with it. We mustn't let this simple act flash by us because right out of the gate we stumble across a deep spiritual meaning that can be easily overlooked. Up to this point in the Bible, anointing with oil as a means to establish authority, usually divinely ordained authority, was reserved for matters concerning the priesthood. What makes Samuel's act all the more curious is that in chapter 9 we saw Saul given a priestly portion of the sacrificed animal at this dinner banquet that had been sponsored by Samuel. In other words, we have a man being established as the king of Israel, but yet there is this aspect of his position and status that denotes some type of priestly connection as well. I'm certainly not the first Bible expositor to notice this. The question is, how much to make of it? What ought we Take from it. Where does this lead us? Now anointing with oil is a symbol of endowment with the Spirit of God. When Shaul was anointed by Samuel's oil, he was consecrated as king. And, important, the office of king of Israel was inaugurated as a divine institution. The merciful God of Israel had no intention of putting Saul in charge of his people and then abandoning him or them. But it also indicated that the king of Israel would in some fashion be on par with the priesthood. Now the priesthood was essentially the Lord's proxy to bestow gifts of the Spirit 
upon the Lord's people. Now, Israel's earthly king would be the vehicle and the medium of bringing divine grace upon the members of his kingdom. This king, Saul, would be set apart, made holy under the direction of God. This king would also be set apart from the rest of the nation that he would govern. Just as the Levites were set apart from the other twelve tribes for service to God. And the priests set apart from the Levites. It was the Lord's will that this human king not only enforce God's legal codes, the law of Moses, but he was to obey them himself. Now Samuel tells Saul that Jehovah is authorizing him to be prince, Nahid, over God's inheritance. Here we ask again, why if a king is being designated, the scriptures keep referring to Saul as a prince or a captain. Now I mentioned last week that somewhat recent discoveries have revealed that one use of the Hebrew term Nahid was as a king in waiting. Okay? An illustration might be that a Nahid is the crown prince in the sense that the king's son was already chosen to assume the throne when his father vacated it, usually by his death. Yet in the Bible, just as in most societies, some terms carry multiple meanings simultaneously. So an alternative meaning of Nagid is that he is a higher authority's representative. Thus, a captain of an army serves the general. And a prince serves his king. Probably as used here, Nagid carries this dual sense of Saul being both an underling to the ruler, Saul was under the authority of God, and also he was next in line to become the highest ruler. Saul was chosen to be king, but he hadn't officially assumed the office yet. Essentially, this scene in the first couple of verses of chapter 10 was a a private anointing between Jehovah, Samuel, and Saul. Now, Shaul would rule over God's inheritance, we're told. What was God's inheritance? Actually, the word inheritance is translated from the Hebrew Nahalah, and it's probably better translated as heritage than inheritance. Inheritance, by definition, only means property. But heritage can refer to anything that comes from a prior legal relationship. Further, it is implicit from the Lord's promise to Abraham that any inheritance included both land and people. So Saul would be divinely authorized to rule over both the Lord's land and his people. Now one can only imagine that Saul is stunned, doubtful, a little bit scared, and not too sure just what to make out of all this. 
I mean, to help alleviate Saul's skepticism, Samuel now gives him three predictions that when they come true, will demonstrate that it is God who is in control and hopefully set Saul's mind at ease. The first prediction in verse 2 is that after leaving Samuel, Saul will find two men in the area of Rachel's tomb. And these men will approach Saul and they're going to tell him that his father's donkeys have been found. Further, that his father's now so worried about his son's extended absence that he's lost all concern for those missing donkeys. Where was Rachel's tomb? Well, there are actually multiple, multiple traditions about this. Some think it's in Ramah, which is Samuel's hometown. Because Jeremiah 31.15 mentions Rachel weeping for her children there in Ramah. Okay. Others point to scripture saying that Rachel died and was buried on the road from Bethel to Ephrat. There's also the modern traditional place of Rachel's tomb near Gilo, just outside of Bethlehem. And some think it may even be near uh, Kiryat Yarim. Well, after Saul has this mysterious experience near Rachel's tomb, wherever that was, Verse 3 says that he's then to continue traveling to a place called the Oak or the Terebinth of Tabor. Elon Tabor in Hebrew. Now although this place is certainly somewhere near Bethel, its exact location has been lost to history. There Samuel is to meet three men. One is carrying some wine, another carrying three goat kids, and the third three loaves of bread. And they are to give Samuel two of those three loaves. This has nothing to do, by the way, with traditional Middle Eastern hospitality. Okay? Bethel was still a major holy site at that time for the Hebrews. And there was an altar of sacrifice located there. These three men were some type of holy men or maybe priests who were on their way to sacrifice at the altar of Jehovah, as the goats and the bread and the wine are all typical sacrificial elements. That they would offer Saul two of the sacrificial loaves and that Saul was instructed to accept them is significant, if not downright strange. I mean, once again we see Saul being included in a ritual or given an honor that's normally reserved only for the priesthood. Next in verse 5, he's to leave there and then journey to a place called Giva of God or Giva Elohim. Interestingly, it mentions that there is a Philistine fort located at this place that in English means the hill of God now this is probably a place about three miles north of Jerusalem and when he gets there it gets even more strange a group of Nabi okay, prophets of God will be on their way down from this high place this hill of God this Giva Elohim accompanied with a group of men 
playing a number of musical instruments, all used for praise. And these men will be prophesying. And then suddenly, the Ruach of Yehovah, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will descend upon Saul, and he will start prophesying, just as these prophets were. Now there's a lot here, so we're going to go about this one subject at a time. First, notice that we have three separate signs of predictions from Samuel that are going to be used as proof that it was God who was anointing Saul. That there were three signs, three signs, in and of itself indicates a divine connection because the number three in the Bible is symbolic of divinity and completeness. The proofs offered are not for the benefit of anyone except Saul. In other words, to use a rather dramatic literary phrase, Saul was on a journey of self-discovery. He has supposedly been chosen and set apart by God, given great authority, immense position and responsibility, but thus far, the only reason for him to even believe that this is so is because some very old man poured olive oil on his head and told him this was the case. Remember, this whole scenario was a total surprise to Saul, who wasn't looking to be king. He was only out searching for his father's lost donkeys. When suddenly, in a matter of hours, his world was turned upside down. I mean, would you take some stranger's word for such an enormous transformation in your life? Would you believe it? If somebody walked up to you and said they were God's spokesman, and, they had, and, and the Lord had placed you in a position of authority over all of God's people, especially if you didn't feel any different, you didn't see any different, you didn't experience anything supernatural, Saul needed proof. To believe that this was real. And that and these pre three um, predictions from Samuel were that in, were intended to be that proof. Second of all, what is meant here by prophesying? Shaul met these men who were prophesying and then he prophesied. What does that mean? Well, the answer to this question has always been troubling to Bible scholars. It seems to have meant different things at different times. And, and even has alternate meanings, meanings according to the context. We in the Western church tend to think of this as excited speech. At other times we see it as a person being given a so-called word from God that usually is meant to be circulated to others. A rather scholarly term for this kind of prophesying is ecstatic speech. Usually is how we think of what occurs in a Pentecostal or a charismatic congregation. However, the more we learn now about ancient Middle Eastern cultures and ancient Hebrew culture in particular, 
the less we can so confidently say that such excited speech is actually what's being indicated in scriptures when the term prophesying is used. Prophesying in the Bible very often seems to be accompanied with music and tambourines and dancing. Therefore, in this context, it could be very much akin to simply praying or singing out loud in a public celebration of the Lord. At other times, it seems as though prophesying is speech coming from someone who's almost in a trance, where they're, they're having some kind of vision or semi-awake dream from God. In the era of the prophets, where a prophet was an official office, and a prophet was widely recognized as being God's earthly messenger, the speech generally consisted of a divine warning, or pronouncement perhaps of a future event, or very often it was a direct instruction from that prophet to the king who was in power at that time. In New Testament times, prophesying was generally associated with merely teaching God's written word or making a commentary on Holy Scripture, although, especially with John, apocalyptic revelation of the future might also be involved. Third, it's interesting to notice this progression of proofs that were created for Saul's benefit. The first one consisted of two men who merely spoke a word of truth. The second one consisted of three men who gave him something. Consecrated bread. And the third one consisted of a yet larger but undefined group, group of men who seemed to call down the Holy Spirit of God upon Saul. The first sign was words, prophetic words. The second sign was physical, but it was holy. And the third sign was purely spiritual in nature. Now, if you've been paying attention today, this ought to be sparking a recognition of something similar that has happened with you. Or at least, if you've attended a church, this all ought to sound familiar. Okay. But if that little tingling or mental alert that you're starting to feel doesn't do it for you, then look again at the last half of verse 6. There it says that after the Holy Spirit falls upon Saul, he's going to prophesy, and then he's going to be turned into a what? A new man. Does that sound a little bit like Pentecost, and then even more generally the act of salvation? Oh, but it gets better. Verse 7 says... That once all of these signs have come upon Saul, he's to go ahead and do whatever he feels led to do because God is with him. Actually, most literally, what it says is, Saul is to do whatever your hand finds. Compare this statement 
with the prophet Nathan's answer to King David in 1 Chronicles 7 where he says, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for Jehovah is with you. I have little doubt that the statement to Saul and then this much later statement to David meant essentially the same thing. It means surrender yourself to the divine impulse with the assurance that if it's the God, if it is the God of Israel giving you that impulse, He is with you. And He is now directing all of your movements. And somehow, all this is in cooperation with, with your own mind and free will. Is this not exactly what a Christian today would call the Holy Spirit leadership of the believer? Folks, it's all about patterns. God patterns. Our understanding of God and of His Word is predicated not on searching His Word for why. Why, oh why, oh why. But rather, which pattern? The New Testament did not establish any new patterns. It fulfilled the earlier ones. When we toss aside the Old Testament, then we toss aside the establishment of the patterns of God. And so we can't and often don't recognize them in the New Testament, with the result often being that we come up with some pretty off-the-wall explanations for what we read. Here we see in the Old Testament a pattern established that we're going to see again. And God's people are supposed to recognize it when it happens in the New Testament. That pattern is going to be followed both by Messiah Yeshua and by his followers. Now I want to pause now to establish a little broader context now for what we're reading. A search for patterns inevitably gives us clues, if not answers, to the purpose for why certain things happened and why they were recorded in God's Word and other things weren't. All but the newest to the Bible know that Saul, as Israel's first king, eventually failed miserably. God rejected him. Israel rejected him. He was constantly at war, constantly disobedient to the laws of Moses, and he committed suicide on the battlefield as his forces were losing. Saul was predictably a failed king because he was essentially given the task to rule God's people as God would rule his people. And no man will ever be able to do that without falling short. But I think we need to recognize that King Saul not only demonstrates a failed king, but he also represents a type of failed Messiah. Don't let my use of the term Messiah bother you. Judges 
were messiahs, deliverers, though of course lesser messiahs. Kings were expected, it's part of the job, to deliver their people from the hands of their enemies. So don't misunderstand my intent by thinking that Saul was appointed by God to necessarily be Israel's ultimate messiah. Nor does Saul's failure neither to deliver God's people nor to behave in pure ways mean that he was an anti-messiah. Rather, the installation of Saul as king is but a recorded example to prove that ultimately only God himself is perfectly suited to rule over his people. Only God himself is perfectly able to save his people. Can you see that part of what is going on in the Old Testament is to show Israel that God is their real king, their real high priest, their real savior? Was not Yeshua declared to be Israel's king, high priest, and savior? Is not Yeshua God? Do you see how all this works hand in glove? God can unfailingly rule and save, but man cannot. Even though mankind in general thinks we don't need God, because we can rule over and save ourselves. Saul was the kind of king and messiah men choose due to our evil inclinations, the type that will necessarily fail. Yeshua is the kind of king that no man would choose. But he is the kind that God chooses because he is the type and the substance that cannot fail. Since Genesis... We have seen that men need a king. Men need a high priest. A mediator between God and man. And men need a savior. A man coming only from the corrupted seed of Adam will never be able to fill these roles in perfection. Never. But inevitably, because of mankind's fallen nature, we will, as a race of creatures... Hope for, look to a man like us. A human being to rule over us. To act as God. To solve our problems. To save us. It has eventually happened in virtually every culture all throughout history. It is happening worldwide. Even in America today. Right before our eyes. And the epitome of this man, who in the end times will appear to be everything mankind thinks it wants and needs, is the man the scriptures call the man of lawlessness, the anti-Christ, the anti-Messiah. As we move on in 1 Samuel chapter 10, we come now to verse 9 where this amazing statement is made. 
that as soon as Saul was anointed with oil, God gave him a new heart. It almost feels like we've traveled through a time tunnel from 1020 B.C. to 30 A.D. Because central to Christianity is that upon a sincere profession of faith in Jesus Christ, we are considered as a new man with a new heart. What does it mean that Saul became a new man and got a new heart? It means that Jehovah so affected Saul's inmost being that he became as a new person with a whole new understanding. It's not at all that Saul began to feel different, having deeper emotions. It's that he thought differently. Recall that despite the Greek and Western culture sees the word Heart, in the Bible, is indicating the seat of our feelings and emotions. In Bible times, it was referring to the mind, the seat of the will, the seat of conscious thought. Well, then when Saul arrived at the place called the Hill of God, Giva Elohim, and found this group of prophets that Samuel told him about, the Spirit of God descended upon him, and he began to prophesy in similar manner as the prophets. But then when a group of people who he had known for a number of years witnessed all this happening, they were stunned. They were perplexed. Everybody knew that Saul hadn't come from a line of prophets, nor had he been declared a prophet. He wasn't trained in these ways. He was just an ordinary man. How could he possibly know what he now seems to know And to speak this way, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to run a tad long, see if you can stay glued to your seats for just a couple extra minutes today. Acts chapter 2, if you've got the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1361. We're going to read the first 13 verses. The festival of Shavuot arrived. And the believers all gathered together in one place and suddenly there came a sound from the sky like the roar of a violent wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then they saw what looked like tongues of fire which separated and came to rest on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to talk in different languages the Spirit enabled them to speak. Now they were staying in Jerusalem religious Jews from every nation under heaven and when they heard this sound a crowd gathered and they were confused because each one heard the believer speaking in his own language and totally amazed they asked how is this possible? aren't all these people who are speaking from the Galilee? how is it that we hear them speaking in our native languages? We are Parthians, Medes, Elamites residents of Mesopotamia, Judah Cappadocia, Pontus Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews by birth, proselytes, Jews from Crete, from Arabia. How is it that we hear them speaking in our own languages about the great things God has done? Amazed and confused, they were all asking each other, what can this mean? But others made fun of them and said they just had too much wine. The Holy Spirit acting upon men 
with such profound effect as to make them speak in ways that didn't seem possible or see things they couldn't possibly see or know things they couldn't possibly know certainly happened in the New Testament but it also happened centuries earlier in the Old I want to end today's lesson with some food for thought now we've spent this whole time together exploring how we ought to consider Saul and his life in a much broader context and how as our study of the books of Samuel continues Saul is going to compare and then contrast with the ideal king of Israel and the divine savior both of which most of the Hebrews rejected so let's take a very abbreviated look at just how eerily similar Saul's life pattern compares to Yeshua's with the glaring difference being that the former is but a natural flawed man while the latter is the incomparable the perfect the divine God man now as I list this life pattern of Saul I want you to Think about and picture the similar pattern that played out in Jesus' life. Just listen to this. He was born into a small family in a small village. He was humble, agreeable, and very conscious of his family's duties. As an adult, he is given the mission to search for his father's lost possessions and to bring them home. He runs into this strange seer prophet out in a remote location, one who had been expecting him. The seer and the prophet recognizes the man as the one God has chosen to be king over his people. The seer and the prophet anoints the chosen one privately in a simple ceremony. The Holy Spirit of God then descends upon him. Now empowered by the Holy Spirit, the Chosen One begins to prophesy and profess God's word and to do mighty deeds. He's taken to a high place. And there he finds his arch enemy. In Saul's case, the Philistines. Some mysterious men of God come to minister to him at this high place called the Hill of God. Until the right moment, this new chosen king hides his identity from the public at large and refuses to openly acknowledge that God has anointed him as king. Few of the Hebrews have any faith in him and most don't believe that this man could possibly save them. Add to that the several references we looked at today of Paul being given the priest's portion and being anointed as a priest is anointed for holy consecration and we see that just as Yeshua is king and priest so is Saul honored as king and priest the ultimate contrast between the failed Messiah King Saul and the successful Messiah King Yeshua is that Saul is the first physical king of Israel and Yeshua will be Israel's last 
physical king of Israel. But in an even larger picture, we see a historical circle completed. The divine God of Israel is the original king and deliverer. And then because of the people's rebellion, they demand that one of their own race become their king and deliverer. And then after an inevitable series of failures, finally as history comes to a close, the divine God of Israel appears. He wrests back control from the corrupt and failed earthly ruler. And once again, the Lord becomes the perfect king and deliverer for Israel. We'll continue in 1 Samuel chapter 10 next week.